Amen. You may be seated. And take your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17. Like many of you, I'm, I'm still on the uh, upswing of dealing with some kind of congestion, and I just can't seem to get rid of it, so uh, it's just going around, and we have several people that are, are dealing with it, so um, unfortunately, it's, it's part of living in a fallen world and it being uh, finite creatures, uh, but there is hope because this morning we want to talk about the resurrection, and uh, when we think about this passage we're going to look at, it is a passage that on a first reading, and maybe when you first encounter it, you think, what in the world am I supposed to do with this story about Jesus and the tax that is paid to the temple? That seems to come out of nowhere. And it's even more confusing when you realize that this is the only gospel that has this account. Matthew includes this in his gospel for a reason. So it obviously matters to Matthew that we have this account. And the question might uh, plague us, why? Why is it so important that Christians know this story about Jesus paying the temple tax? And that's the question we want to ask today. But if you remember last time, we talked about faith. And we talked about bringing your big problems to a bigger God who can do the impossible, even with your smallest, weakest faith. And if you remember, I said uh, our hope is not in the quality or the quantity of our faith. And, and I want you to know that's not a phrase that's unique to me. I am not, I'm not the originator of that thought. That is, that is the reformers. That's Calvin and Luther and, and Protestants all uh, down through the ages from the Protestant Reformation. That our hope is in Christ. And we saw in the passage last week that Jesus called his disciples, O oh, you of little faith. He called you little faith ones. And we said that even the weakest faith, the smallest faith, if it's placed in a, a powerful God, and if it's placed in Christ, it can do the impossible. So we might understand that we need to have faith. And that it's okay that if we take our small faith and put it in a big God, God can do the impossible. However, what you need to understand is that Christianity, following Jesus, is not just a life that is begun by faith, it is continued by faith. And I found myself studying and thinking, he calls the disciples you of little faith. And then he says, bring, we said, bring your big problems. Well, what if one of our biggest problems is our faith? You see, Jesus tells them they have little faith, but what is the solution? What is it that, that needs to be done? Our, our tendency might be to think, well, the disciples just needed to know a little bit more. It was a knowledge problem. They just didn't know any better. Or they might think maybe it was a, an education problem. They, they weren't taught good enough. Or, or maybe we thought it was a... Uh, we could say it was a problem of... 
a failure to connect the dots. What, however, the point that we have to be careful, we have to be careful not to think that somehow the answer is a self-improvement on the part of the disciples. And we see, I think, that the way Matthew structures these next two passages, there's two sections, verses 22 and 23, and then 24 through 27, he points us to the fact that it is not really an issue that the disciples themselves can fix, first and foremost. It is, first and foremost, not a knowledge problem, not a practical problem. It's a spiritual problem. Our faith, the lack of it, the strength of it, is a spiritual issue. And what I want us to do is... Look at these two, these two passages, and they may seem disconnected. And if we assume they're disconnected, we might read them as they're disconnected. But I actually think Matthew wants us to take them together. And what I want us to look at is uh, what Jesus is teaching us about our faith. Particularly what the solution is, what, what the deeper solution is, and then what that means for us. Okay, And so as we look at this passage... Verses 22 through 27, what I want you to walk away here remembering, I want you to remember this, because we are saved through faith in Jesus' death and resurrection, let us continue to trust him with that same faith. That's today's central truth. If you need to uh, know what we're going to be talking about today, it's this today. Because we are saved through faith in Jesus' death and resurrection, let us continue to trust him with that same faith. We'll unpack what this means, but, but I want you to have that because this is going to be our focal point this morning. When you look at verses 22 through 27, I want you to understand that really this is part of a, a following on the heels of what we talked about last week. We have to read them together and the, the title of the message is Christ and the Crux. Now, crux is, 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 that's a Latin word for cross, but it's also the point in a passage where there's a turn or in a story, like what's the crux of the matter? What's the heart of the matter? And if we read it with verses 22 and 23 at the crux of the passage we saw last week and the passage that comes after, I think we see what Matthew's trying to do. So by way of reminder, just very shortly, if you look at verse 17, Jesus addresses his disciples. And I think he's addressing the disciples. And what does he call them? You unbelieving and perverse generation. Now let that sink in. He calls them unbelieving. That means without faith, faithless. So they are following Jesus, but, but they understand. You need to understand they are still pre-resurrection. They are pre the, the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost. And so there's a disconnect there. They are, the word literally means without faith. We say, you know, we say atheist means, the, the A means no God. These are A faithful. They, are, they have no faith. But not just that, he calls them perverse. Now, what does he mean by that? It's the type of person who causes others to depart from kind of the, the, the expected spiritual, oral, moral standards. And so they make crooked and they pervert. 
And we said last week, I don't know if you remember this, but we said that this is an echo from Deuteronomy 32, where Moses speaks of the Israelites of his day, and he says that they are corrupt children of their just and faithful God. So Jesus is comparing the disciples and their lack of faith to the unfaithfulness and the crookedness of the generation that was led out of Egypt. And so the the disciples echo... That their failure points back to Israel's failure. That they are a, 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 uh, an echo or a, they sound like... We, we've heard this story before, right? That their failure is like Israel's failure. But understand the disciples' failure doesn't just point backward. It, always po- it also points forward to us. I mean, think about it. Could not... The phrase unbelieving and perverse be a perfect summary of every person's life before Christ. Before Jesus, we are sinners. Before we are changed, we are sinners who have rebelled against God and we give in to the perverse desires of our heart. We don't believe in God. And I don't think we need to make a list of the things that that we could talk about of our perversity. I mean, for some of us, there are things that we did before Jesus that even the world would agree those are shameful. But then there's other things that, re- those small things that reveal how perverse we are. And sometimes we still, we get glimpses into to our old hearts, right? When you, when you make that comment that you know will be hurtful to someone, but you kind of want to make it. When you say that thing that you know will cause uh, disunity or disruption, but you want to say it. You you want to cause the chaos. We see it in the perversity of, of the things that we look at, the things that we enjoy. So not just perverse, but unbelieving. Apart from Jesus Christ, we don't believe in him. Our lives before salvation is one of unbelief. There's not kind of believers and kind of unbelievers. You have believers and unbelievers. And before the work of God in our hearts, we are unbelieving. So to to talk about little faith, we're, we're not even there yet. Before Christ, we have no faith. We are exactly how Jesus describes the disciples. That's why Paul says what he says in Ephesians 2. You are saved by grace through faith. It is a gift You are saved by grace through faith. It is a gift of God. What is the faith? The faith that you don't have. The faith that you can't conjure up. The faith that you cannot make grow in your heart. It is a gift of God that is given to you and you believe. And so where are we when we look at this passage? Well, we're right there in verse 17. We are the unbelieving and perverse generation. And that's where all of us are before Jesus. So that's not good. So we look at the failure of the disciples and then we see our own, our own failures. So skip down to verse 24 now. We've been fully reminded of our sinfulness. And maybe you're here this morning, you've never trusted Christ. What you need to understand is you are separated from God. Your sin has separated you. Your disobedience has separated you. And there's nothing you can do to bridge that gap. There is nothing that you can do to make yourself good enough. You cannot be righteous enough. 
Even if you could be righteous enough, you're so prideful that your pride would cause you to fall. So there's no hope for us in our sin, in our unbelieving, in our perversity. But then we get to verse 24 through 27. And here's what's interesting. We have this account of the, the temple tax. Now, what is going on here? Let's look at verse 24 and following. It says, When they came to Capernaum, those who collected the temple tax approached Peter and said, Doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Yes, Peter said. When he went into the house, Jesus spoke to him first. What do you think, Simon? From whom do earthly kings collect tariffs or taxes? From their sons or from strangers? And from strangers, he said. Then the sons are free, Jesus told him. But so we don't offend them, go to the sea, cast in a fish hook, and take the first fish you catch. When you open its mouth, you'll find a coin. Take it and give it to them for me and for you. What in the world do we do with this? Well, first of all, you have to understand that almost everything that Matthew does has an Old Testament background to it. So if you ever are reading Matthew and something comes across and it doesn't quite make sense, you're, you're not able to get a grasp on it, I think a good question to ask is what Old Testament passage is Matthew referring to? It would also help you to remember that Matthew is most likely writing to Jews who had become Christians. And they're trying to navigate their new relationship to the temple, to the law, and all sorts of other Jewish customs and beliefs now that they are following the Messiah. But what is going on with this temple tax? Well, the temple tax that is being referred to here was a fairly new tax, but it was based on an old law. And that old law is in Exodus 30, verses 11 through 16. And when you go look at Exodus 30, you see that the tax really has a twofold purpose. The first purpose is the maintenance or the contribution, something given to the tent of meeting. So Israel's in the wilderness. They don't have a, t a temple. They have the tent of meeting. It's a tent that can be put up and taken down. But there's also another aspect that you need to have in mind. So listen and see if you can figure out uh, the key point here in Exodus 30, verses 11 through 16. The Lord spoke to Moses. When you take a census of the Israelites to register them, listen, each of the men must pay a ransom for his life to the Lord as they are registered. Then no plague will come on them as they are registered. Verse 13, everyone who is registered must pay half a shekel according to the sanctuary shekel. Twenty geras is to the shekel. This half shekel is a contribution to the Lord. There's the contribution, right? Each man who is registered, 20 years old or more, must give this contribution to the Lord. Verse 15, the wealthy may not give more and the poor may not give less than half a shekel when giving the contribution to the Lord to atone for your lives. Verse 16, take the atonement price from the Israelites and use it for the service in the tent of meeting. There's the maintenance, the contribution. And then listen to this. It will serve as a reminder for the Israelites before the Lord to atone for your lives. What is the other purpose of this tax? 
It's not just contributions to the temple, but what is it? It's a ransom. It's an atonement. It's a price paid to cover the life of an individual. And notice in Exodus, it's to avoid a plague, to avoid some kind of retribution. So here, a price is being paid to avoid punishment. Are you starting to see where Matthew's going with this? So Peter gets asked, and poor Peter, he's just got told he has little faith. And that he is part of a perverse and crooked generation. But then he, he's there in Capernaum, and they come up and they ask the people that collect the temple tax. They say, Peter, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? And they're expecting Peter to say yes, and Peter obliges by saying, yes, of course. He, why wouldn't he? I mean, we know what the law says. But unfortunately, Peter botches this too. You ever felt like that? You mess up big time, and then you're like, I, I'm going to try to do better. But then you mess up big time immediately. Again, I see the heads nodding, right? All right. So poor Peter, he obviously is not a good candidate for the self-improvement program. Okay. But here he is, and Jesus knows what's happened because when he comes in the house... He asks him, Jesus speaks to him first. He says, what do you think, Simon? From whom do earthly kings collect tariffs or taxes, from their sons or from strangers? Now, this word strangers, you probably have a note in your Bible. There, there's, there's, sometimes it's a little confusing uh, when you read a Bible, your Bible and it gives you a footnote that tells you actually this word means this and, and it, it cha- might change the way you read the passage, but... Uh, I think the point here is not whether it's from sons or strangers. It's, is it from sons or citizens? And, and the citizens are strangers in the sense. But the point that Jesus is making is those who are, are part of the family are not the ones taxed. And what is this tax for? The temple. And Peter answers the question. He says the strangers. So not the son. And so Jesus says so the sons are free. Jesus' point is, this tax that you say I pay, I, as the son, as the son of God, as the son of man, I am not obligated to pay this tax, Peter. You see that now, right? This is not something that, that I am obliged to. It is not something that I am required to do because the sons are free. But, Jesus says, so we don't offend them, go to the sea Cast in a fish hook, take the first fish that you catch. When you open its mouth, you will find a coin. Take it and give it to them for me and you. So Jesus' deep answer to Peter's, Peter's mistake is, is that the sons are free. And Jesus' point is that he doesn't have to pay the tax. He's free from this. But notice he does pay. There is a price That he's not required to pay, but he's willing. There's a price. It's not a sin that he he doesn't pay it because he's free. But he does it to avoid the offense. And not only does he pay the price that he is not under obligation to pay, he pays it out of his abundant sovereign provision. Because notice he doesn't just reach into the bank. As if he is obligated. I mean, it's one thing if somebody pays a tax and you go out of your own bank account and you admit that you owe that tax and pay it, right? It's another thing when Jesus says, go out, there's going to be a fish. The first fish you catch, take it. There's a coin in its mouth. Give it. 
So Jesus is not obligated to pay this tax, but he can sovereignly provide and graciously provide, miraculously provide for the payment of this tax, this price that needs to be paid. And then he says, notice, if you've ever, uh, so just look at the, the sovereignty of Jesus here. He says, go to the sea, okay, cast in a fish hook. Notice it's not a fishing net. One hook, right? And those of you who fish, you know a lot, some fish can be uh, 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 attracted to shiny objects, right? And so it's not unreasonable that, that, that a fish would have a shiny object in its mouth. But Jesus says, go, use a fish hook, not a net, and the first fish you catch, open its mouth and you'll find a coin. And notice it's not just any coin, but he says, take it and give it to them for me and for you. Jesus sovereignly provides a price that covers Peter. He pays for Peter's debt. He pays the price for this tax. And remember what this tax is for. It is for atonement. It is for ransom. So here Peter obviously cannot improve himself. He is, he is described as perverse and unbelieving. And here Jesus responds by saying, Here, I am going to pay the price for your ransom, for your atonement to cover you. He pays Peter's bill. But notice he doesn't just pay his bill. He pays it out of his freedom as the son. He's not required to. But as the son, he uses his freedom to purchase the freedom of Peter and shares that freedom with Peter. Go and pay for me and for you. Matthew is pointing us somewhere. He's pointing us in a direction. The question is, what is going on? How is it? What is it that takes sinners, unbelieving, perverse, and then pays the price so that now they get to enjoy the same status as the son who is free? It's by the son paying the price. So how... How do we answer? What is Matthew doing? Well, that's where the crux is. You see, the verse 17 in the description points us down. The temple tax points us up. And what do we find in the, at the crux of the passage? Verses 22 and 23. How are these passages tied together? Verses 22 and 23 and the temple tax passage... I think the best answer is through the imagery. Through the imagery. Notice, Jesus says, Go to the sea and cast in a fish hook. So immediately our minds go to the hands of Peter fishing. And he says, Take the first fish. So we see Peter's hands taking the fish. And then he says, open your mouth and you'll find a coin. We see the hands opening the fish and taking out the coin. But then at the very end, we said, take it and give it to me, uh, to them for me and for you. So we see money exchanging hands. So we have this imagery of hands. Then we recall and we go look at verses 22 and 23. Look at what it says. As they were gathering together in Galilee, 
Jesus told him, the Son of Man is about to be what? Handed over. Where? Into the hands of men. They will kill him. And on the third day he will be raised up. And they were deeply distressed. So let's put all the cards on the table. Let's put the cookies on the bottom shelf as it were. The whole point of the temple tax is Jesus is the ransom. He is the coin that exchanges hands. And we see that this is true because Jesus says the Son of Man, the Messiah, the promised one, is about to be handed over from one hand to the next. Into what? The hands of men. And what will happen? They will kill him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. So how do these two passages connect in this exchange Jesus is the the price of our redemption he pays the price as the son who is free and how will he do that he will be betrayed he will be handed over and they will kill him and on the third day he will be raised up Matthew's point is what takes sinners from unbelieving and perverse and makes them sons and daughters is nothing that we do it's what Christ did He is going to go to a cross. He is going to take our punishment. He is going to die in our place. And he will rise again. And that price being paid means he will share his status, his freedom as son with those who were strangers. How do strangers become sons and daughters? It's because Jesus Christ is willing to pay the price for us. The Son of Man will die. A price will be paid, but He will rise again. And that means our atonement, our ransom will be purchased and paid in full. It is a price that the Son does not have to pay. He is no debtor. He's no under obligation, but in His gracious provision, He will provide it for others like Peter. And if He provides it for Peter, He provides it for you and He provides it for me. If we are in Christ, we are strangers made into sons and daughters. So what does that have to do with our main idea, our central truth this morning? We said because we're saved through faith in Jesus' death and resurrection, that's what it means for us today. That we are saved Through faith, and that faith is a gift. Jesus died and rose again. And if you believe that, and you believe that was for you, and you trust that what he did was for you, and when applied to you, you are cleansed and forgiven, that means you are saved. But you know what that also means? That means that you have faith. If you have trusted in Christ as your Savior, That means God has done a work in your life that even though you were perverse and unbelieving, you are now a believer. And so when we read this, you you unbelieving and perverse generation, we understand that's where we were, but that's no longer where we are because the price has been paid. And if that little faith is all it takes to move mountains, understand that you already have that faith. If Jesus Christ has changed your heart, you have the little faith that moves mountains. 
So don't miss the point that Matthew's saying. We said last week, bring your big problems, whatever it is, to a bigger God with your weakest faith. And you might have looked at it and said, I don't know if I have that faith. I don't know if it's there within me. Uh, but let me ask you this. Have you trusted Christ? Have you looked to him? Because if you have, that is a work of God in your life. And you have even the weakest, smallest faith. So continue to trust him with the same faith that you trusted him. We talked about bringing big problems. But listen, God has already dealt with our biggest problem. We said this last week. Our sin has been dealt with. How foolish and how insincere it would be to say, God, I know I have this huge problem of my sin being separated from you, and you've dealt with that, you've solved that, you've given me the faith, I believe it, but now I don't know if I have enough faith to handle this thing at work. I don't know if I have enough faith to handle this, this sin, this temptation that I'm constantly wrestling with. Do you see that the whole point of Matthew is that you have already been given everything you need, even the faith the weak, small faith, whatever your faith is, that can do the impossible. You're saved through faith in Jesus' death and resurrection, who he is and what he did. So this morning, continue, be encouraged, rest in that faith and continue to trust him with the same faith that led you to put your faith in him. For your forgiveness of your for the forgiveness of your sins and for salvation. I don't know what you faced this past week. I don't know what you're going to face this week. But don't separate the resurrection, like this passage. Don't 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 separate the resurrection of he's going to be killed and on the third day be raised up and then be like the disciples. What does it say right after that? And they were deeply distressed. They still hadn't connected the implications of the death and resurrection onto their life. What it means. So believer, if you've trusted Christ, you have the kind of faith that moves mountains. It's been given to you. You've been forgiven because you've trusted in Jesus' death and resurrection. So today, continue in that same faith. Continue in that same trust. Continue resting in Christ for whatever it is you need. Trust Him with that same faith. But maybe you're here this morning and you don't know Christ as your Savior. What remains for you to do is to understand that you cannot, by any will, by any sincerity, by any good works, deal with your own sin. It requires a price to be paid that you cannot afford. And that price is death. Your, really, your only hope is that you could die and raise yourself back to life. The Bible says that the wages of sin, the just payment for sin is death. So, here are your options. Number one, you die because you've sinned and then raise yourself back to life. And if you can't think that you can do that, your only other hope is to rest and trust in Jesus. He paid the price for you. 
He died in your place. He rose again. And that means that the payment was accepted. It was paid in full. What we said, Jesus paid it all. And if you trust him, you can be forgiven of your sins. And you can have a loving relationship, a new relationship. You can have hope and you can do what God has called you to do. So, wherever you are today, maybe what you need to do is just to simply trust the Lord again. That sounds so simple, doesn't it? But maybe you need to affirm your trust in the Lord to say, Lord, whatever, what, what has happened this week? Lord, the timing's not great. It's been hard, but I trust you. Maybe there's a situation you're wanting to seek the Lord, see the Lord move. That same faith that you trusted Jesus, that he died and rose again, take that same faith and trust him again. We come to a time of invitation. This is a chance for you to respond as the Lord leads. I don't know how the Lord has spoken to you, but if you need prayer, I'll be right here at the front. I'd be happy to pray with you. Uh, If you have questions, come find me after the service. Uh, Or if you want to talk, I'd love to be able to help you in any way I can. But this is a time for you to respond. So I'm going to pray, and you respond where you are. And uh, as the Lord leads, uh, you be quick to hear and obey. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. For Jesus, we thank you, Lord, that, Jesus, you paid it all. And, God, that you, as the free son, laid down your life to save strangers and sinners. God, those who were far from you, you brought us near. And, Lord, it's all by your grace. It's by your kindness. So, Lord, help us to not think that that Christianity has just begun by trusting in Jesus and that we have to take it from there. But God, that every single thing we face, we can trust and believe, we can rest, we can bring whatever it is to you and trust you. Holy Spirit, you work now as you see fit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.